0: This week on the Back Table Podcast,
1: it's re, there is something called the reuse policy, uh, wherein for unaffordable patients, if they cannot afford. Uh, catheters and wires are reused, uh, obviously after sterilization procedure and everything, and uh, so there is a reuse policy in India, and which was a shock to me when I came in over here because uh, I have never heard of this. And uh, but uh, but there is no other choice, and uh, if we have to do in for everybody, if everybody cannot cater to the you know if we have to cater to the needs of each and every person, we have to do this. Unfortunately, um, but yeah, equipment is an issue. Um, having said that, the basic equipment is always there, but.
0: On everything. Hey guys, and welcome to the Back Table Podcast, your source for all things IR and endovascular. I'm Chris Beck, and I'll be your host today. Per usual, we are always on the lookout for more feedback. So if you have some for us, please reach out to us. The address that uh, the website address you can get us at is www.backtable.com or our Twitter handle is at underscore backtable. First off, I'd like to thank our sponsor, RadPad. Guys, we appreciate the uh, we appreciate the support. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians it's clinically proven radiation protection during DSA and fluoroguided procedures. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RADPAD radiation protection shields for all your interventions. See RADPAD for more information or reach out to them at info at RADPAD.com for a free radiation and no-brainer radiation protection cap. Uh, without out of the way, I'm happy to introduce our guest today. Deepa Shree, will be talking about the practice of IR in India. And uh, Deepa, would you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your practice?
1: Uh, Right. Um, I'm uh, Dr. Deepa Shree and I'm I'm a practicing interventional radiologist in India. And uh, here I've been in India for the last uh, six or seven years now. And um, I must say in the last uh, seven years, I have seen a vast change in IR since I have, uh, you know, I've, I've been over here. And, uh, prior to that, I was, I was in UK and, um, and I was, uh, I was a radiology resident. And uh, later on, I moved on to IR and, uh, that's where I am today. And I'm a clinical lead at a hospital called as Dr. Rayla Student Medical Center. It's a liver transplant center. Uh, mm-hmm. so my, uh, my IR work is predominantly HPB interventions. HPB actually stands for hepatopancreato biliary interventions, predominantly liver interventions.
0: Would you back up a little bit? And first, I kind of want to dig into, how you actually got into interventional radiology and what IR training looks like as far as med school and residency in India.
1: Um, Right. Um, I mean, I I have been. I I, I completely got trained and in uh, trained in UK. So the the scenario is totally different in India. In India, we have three years of radiology program, which is called as MD in radiology, and Mm -hmm. uh, and or there is something called as a DNB program, which is Diploma in National Board. So you get into those, uh, you know, the three year program, and for someone to get into IR, you need to do. You need to search for an accredited fellowship. Uh, in India, there are totally around seventy two accredited fellowship programs in India, and uh, usually it's a one year or a two year fellowship programme and, uh, uh, and that's what it is and Last year they have introduced something called as DM in IR so basically you have eight posts for the entire India to get into IR or you have one or two year fellowship programs. And that's how it works. And unfortunately, I feel three year program in radiology itself is too short to explore IR because people who are radiology residents, they really do not get an exposure to IR until they finish off their radiology career. And that's when they get to know a little bit about interventional radiology. Uh, And that's how
0: it works over here. You did your training over in England, I believe?
1: Yeah, over in England, I was a radiology resident. I got into my radiology program there, and uh, I was I'm i I'm from Yorkshire, Deanery. So the way it was, I mean, I suppose uh, you know about this. The way it works in UK, it's a five year program, and then with a mm-hmm. fellowship program for one year or two year if you want to do, uh, you know, IR. But the advantage at that point of time was there was something called as a focused individualized training scheme, which is called as a FIT scheme, um, wherein you get to choose your IR career right from day one of your radiology program if you want to and I was lucky because I actually did uh, you know an observership in interventional radiology uh, much before I got into this IR so I did general medicine I did MRCP before getting into radiology program because in UK it's mandatory you do either general medicine or general surgery before you get into radiology program so I did five years of general medical training and during that time I had an exposure to IR I had an observership for about four weeks and that's where I built a Flavor for IR. And I got trained in HPB interventions. I, I asked them if I could get trained exclusively in HPB interventions because I knew that I was going to get into a HPB center over here. Uh, so I wanted to be more focused um, in HPB because I knew there isn't a scope for other aspects of IR in India.
0: So whenever whenever you were in the UK, it was one year of internship and then five years of radiology with um different amounts of interventional radiology with kind of like a dedicated focus on interventional radiology throughout those five years?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we have placements in IR right from our first year. If you want to, you can choose your IR from day one of your radiology training program.
0: So then you finish your training in the UK and did you immediately, um, go back to India to start your practice or did you practice a little bit in the UK or somewhere else abroad?
1: Uh, I practiced a little bit in UK for six months after I finished my radiology program, um, and uh, because I wanted to appear for uh, in, you know the uh, EBIR as well, which is European Board in Interventional Radiology, and uh, f- you know, it's an exam that we had to give, and uh, so I, I had to finish that exam, and then I late after six months after practicing in UK, I moved back to India.
0: Okay, and that was always the plan to you to to study abroad in the UK and then come back and take that skill set uh, back to India.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Once you came back to India, what did what did it look like as far as like applying for jobs, looking for jobs? Like what I guess, what, what did the job market look like in India when you were um, getting back to India to, to search out for an interventional position?
1: Uh huh. Um, I mean, I would say I was probably lucky because uh, the job market in India is not great as far as IR is concerned, uh, because uh, there, there aren't many interventional radiologists in the first place. Uh, people actually do not get into ir because there aren't many jobs and most people including you know the the the, the doctor fraternity is not familiar with ir so we don't get referred cases from a general surgeon or uh, you know from a general medicine person it's you know it's not very popular that way people are actually not aware of ir um but i was lucky because of the uh, you know the center that i was that i had chosen in my right when i was in my third year of medic, you know radiology training that's when i had applied for jobs in India and uh, I have been offered a job saying that, you know, if you come back to India, uh, please get trained in HPV intervention, which is hepato interventions, and come out to India and then we'll give you a job. And that was a promise given to me. And uh, because of that, I got trained and then it was, uh, you know, getting a job was not difficult for me. Um, I very easily slipped into the system over here because the job was ready and I exclusively got trained in uh, liver interventions. And it's a liver transplant center. So, uh, you know, the workload was just apt for me. Uh, but however, the scenario is quite different. If you generally apply to everybody else, I don't think it's the same. I was just lucky, I would say.
0: Wow. That, well, then that is fortunate. So yeah. if, if we could take a step back, though, and I, I know we could do an entire podcast probably on uh, the healthcare system in India, but can you give our audience uh, a basic understanding of how uh, the structure of uh, Indian healthcare is set up?
1: Um, i mean uh, the, the way the indian healthcare is set up is obviously you have a government healthcare and it's a private healthcare and uh, you know we call we call them the corporate uh, the corporate hospitals all come under the private sector uh, but unfortunately um, you know i mean i uh, it's the the, the private, people prefer to go to a private healthcare because of the facilities and the infrastructure is you know is, is probably good in a private healthcare as opposed to a government setup um you know unlike um, unlike uk where i have seen you know nhs is really great and you know, anybody can just walk into the NHS and you can get the treatment done. Uh, for example, if somebody needs an intervention, I don't think uh, you know, everything is available in a government setup. Um, in, in, even the intervention radiologists are very few in a government setup. So people preferentially, you know, they choose a private sector and, uh, and it's quite an expensive job to get it done. I mean, there are a lot of insurance. I mean, it's not necessary or it's not mandatory to have an insurance. Um, but yeah, the, you know, it's, it's quite an expensive job if you want to get it done in a private healthcare sector.
0: I see. So so there's a there's a public arm and then there's a private sector. And the yeah. hospital that you're based out of is a, a private corporate hospital?
1: It is, yeah. It is. Yeah.
0: Okay. So tell us a little bit about your practice in that when whenever you took your job on for uh HPV interventions, like what is your mm-hmm. what is your day-to-day look like in terms of your uh uh, do you work eight to five? Do you take call? Do you do diagnostics? Is it exclusively interventional radiology? Just a little bit about what your day to day looks like.
1: Yeah, uh, when I started uh, seven years ago, I I took in both diagnostic and interventional radiology because I feel both are interconnected, and um, you know, getting a you know, doing a little bit of diagnostic and and also the interventional radiology department was not set up very well when I walked into this hospital Um, so I had to actually uh, you know start the IR practice over here for that I had to get into the diagnostic radiology as well and the typical day when I started uh, was more of uh, you know diagnostic radiology and very uh, you know few interventions at that point of time. Uh, later on, you know, uh, we, we had to do a lot of marketing inside the hospital and then, you know, just explain to people a lot of conferences, a lot of CMEs and, you know, in-house uh, meetings wherein people got exposed to different, uh, you know, interventional radiology. Uh, procedures that we can offer, and slowly the practice actually, uh, you know, we could build up uh, the practice over here. And later on, I decided to move on from diagnostic to exclusive IR, and that really helped me to focus on IR because I felt that there needs to be a fellowship program, and so I brought in the fellowship program in India so that I can train people, and uh, so we got in the IR uh, fellowship program as well. Um, so, like in any other uh, setup, the IR over here because of I think I suppose the you know the training in UK it really helped me to set up. The and MDT's Tumor board meetings and uh, you know the the fellowship program, having an academic program, and at the same time uh, you know doing the procedures. In terms of the volume, it wasn't it wasn't huge, and even now uh, I wouldn't say it's it's a great uh, it's a huge volume. But I'm fortunate to be working in a transplant center because we get to do a lot of tumor embolizations, a lot of tumor ablations, because most of the patients have got HCC and you know they come into the transplant center for uh, you know for the liver transplantation. So we do it as a bridge to transplant. Um, sure. And uh, and that's that's how that's what keeps me busy over here.
0: You know, after you explained all the things that, you know, from the beginning of your practice to to where you've gotten to now, it sounds like you covered a lot of ground. How long have you been in practice?
1: Uh, You mean the IR practice?
0: Yeah, the IR practice in India.
1: IR practice in India for, for I think it's about eight years now.
0: Okay. So you started your job eight years ago. And, and, and if I can summarize, so when you first started out, you were doing a lot of diagnostic radiology and, and it seems like you were doing a lot to build up the practice yourself. And then at some right. point you created enough work through physician education to where yeah. now you're fully interventional radiology.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right.
0: Do you have any partners in your group or in your, in, in the practice?
1: partners no we don't have any partners in the group but when i uh, when i actually came in there was one person who used to visit from another city uh, to to chennai where i live and uh, he used to come in every thursday uh, to do the cases here i mean there used to be one day per week wherein they used to schedule all the cases um so he was actually covering at that particular point of time but as such we don't have any partners so i'm i'm just on my own and uh, but we do have i i i did uh, take in a lot of juniors uh, you know we call them associate consultants and and the fellows and that's
0: about it okay so after hours coverage for interventional radiology how does that work are you are you on call all the time
1: yeah yeah, yeah, we are. But as such, I don't know, it's it's a it's, it's, a, it's a blessing in disguise, I would say, um, that, you know, we don't get disturbed often in the night. I mean, other than the trauma cases, uh, which are very few, uh, especially in the center where I work or, you know, some bleeding cases, other than that, you know, we don't get disturbed. But otherwise, I'm on call 24-7 and uh, we have fellows to cover some of the cases. But, uh, you know, for, for certain crucial cases, I get to go in. Uh, but I wouldn't say it's, you know, it's, it's that busy to disturb me every day.
0: Are there times whenever you go on vacation and then you have someone else cover you while you're gone?
1: Uh, yeah, we I do have something called as a MOU, you know, the Memorandum of Understanding with another consultant in a different hospital. So before I decide to, I mean, recently I've been on a vacation for four days and uh, because of the MOU, I just asked him to cover up for any of the emergency cases. And uh, so and, and it's, it's, it so happens that when you're out on a vacation, you do get some emergencies only during that time. And we ended up yes. having a couple of emergencies and uh, it was well covered. So that way, you know, I think we are, you know, we, we, we do have an MOU with other people, other guys in other hospitals yeah
0: so you you touched on something about the fellows uh, so you have fellows and you have uh, i think you call it, maybe called them junior associates um uh-huh. as far as as far as that goes if you have a case that's of low complexity it's mm-hmm. it's a situation where you can entrust that to the fellow and you, and you may not have to come in to supervise them is that right
1: uh, that's right. I mean, we do have uh, something called an as, you know, assessment for the first, I mean, it's a two year fellowship program that we run. Uh, a, a second year fellow is allowed to do certain cases independently, you know, based on the assessment, based on the level that they achieve, uh, from mm-hmm. level one to level four, depending on the complexity of the case. I mean, we have the credential and privileging, uh, system over here. So wherein I give them the privileges to do certain cases, when I'm confident that, you know, this person can handle this case very well. Um, so, yeah, fellows usually, uh, you know, they, they are they're quite competent to handle, uh, you know, most of the cases other than complex ones.
0: Okay. What would it, so a, a senior level fellow, so someone who's maybe at a level four, I assume that's the highest level, you know, they're towards uh-huh. the end of their fellowship and they're, and they're soon to graduate. What are some of the cases that they may come in and be comfortable handling on their own um, without um, you actually in the control room supervising?
1: Uh, well, I mean, uh, as I said, you know, the, the the last this this week when I actually was out on the vacation, we had uh, two cases wherein there was a there was a bleeder, uh, you know, who was actually it's, it's a post uh, you know procedural bleed. Uh, patient ended up having bleeding in the you know it, it was an intrahepatic arterial bleed, and uh, they could just go in and embolize it, and the patient was absolutely fine uh, with no problems. And in fact, it was a post transplant case. So getting into the you know liver post transplant because of the anastomosis can be difficult, but I. I don't think they had any difficulty in getting inside and then uh, doing the embolization. So I would say probably embolization in trauma cases or any of the bleeders, uh, I'm happy for them to do and any of the emergency PTBDs, uh, you inability know, drainages, if somebody needs, if somebody mm-hmm. is in sepsis, um, I'm quite happy for them to do as long as the, you know, the system is dilated. And um, I think one of the things that we need to, uh, you know, incorporate in, as part of the fellowship is, you know, uh, you know if, they, if they're actually not comfortable with any of the cases, I would tell them not to touch and uh, just to call for help because we do have another person who's covering us. And uh, so generally, it's, you know, if they're, if they're confident about a particular case, they usually go in. Having said that, you you know, we, we, it's just a phone call away to call another person to come for help.
0: Sure, of course. So I, yeah. I guess even when they are taking on cases, if they get into something that they they don't feel particularly comfortable with, they have a backup who which they They can have leave. a backup, absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. Great. yeah, yeah. I think that also builds a certain level of autonomy. Uh, with with the fellows and and helps them build confidence and and troubleshoot on their own rather than just always looking to someone to tell them the answer so i think that's a good absolutely. setup
1: absolutely absolutely i've been a fellow myself and i it feels great when you do a case independently and when the consultant you know trusts you so much that you know he just lets you crack on with the case i think it's a, it's it's a, it just boosts our confidence and i think it's it's a very fine line um but, but but i feel i think this is this is important at times i feel to just give them the opportunity to crack on with the cases yeah
0: yeah absolutely so, getting in a little bit to the system in, in, in which you operate, if if you're at a private uh, corporate hospital and mm-hmm. you have patients that come in, how is how is the the fee schedule based? Is is it somewhere where like if someone's having like if you just take me through what does it looks like to get a consult with you and then go through like an outpatient procedure like an embolization of HCC? Mm-hmm um mm-hmm. how does that are those patients aware of the cost ahead of time do they have to pay ahead of time what What does that look like for the the patient end
1: yeah um i mean they are uh i mean usually what happens is they usually go and see uh you know the the clinician first and uh, or the surgeon and uh, I, I mean we made it mandatory i mean when i first started here you won't believe me it's uh they would just i would just get a call in the middle of the night saying that tomorrow a patient is posted for taste And I would have no idea about, you know, that particular patient, you know, who who actually spoke to patient, has has he been counseled, what exactly is happening. So that was the scenario at that point of time. Uh, But later on, we brought in this culture of seeing the patients and then counseling them, getting the consent and talking to them about the billing and, you know, the cost, about the procedure. Everything has to be explained to the patient, you know, prior to, you know, me uh, getting in and, you know, doing something on the patient. So nowadays, the way it works is usually they see the clinician, then they come over to me directly. They don't actually pay me for my consultation because they would have already paid the surgeon or the clinician because that's, that's when they would send patients to me. Uh, if okay. they had to pay for my consultation, usually they would say, "No, you know, why, why do they have to pay separately, you know, for you and for us? So usually what happens is they pay them and then they would just come and see me. I would talk to them, explain to them about the cost of the procedure, the pros and cons and everything, and then send them over to the billing department usually they get counseled about the cost of the procedure and they they need to pay about, we have a basic tariff wherein they need to pay for the, you know, just for the, you know, the basic procedural cost and whatever consumables we use, you know, about the, the catheters or whatever we use, that's an extra. So we just give an estimate, um, you know, about the procedure and, you know, they just go on with that. Uh, so they need to pay at least 50% of the procedural cost before the procedure and the remaining, they pay after the procedure.
0: Okay. So, that's pretty neat in that they see you in consultation. It's a free consult for the patient. And then after that, you kind of forward them on to your, uh, the hospital pr- has a billing department that they go in. And yeah. I guess the billing department has a, a basic understanding of what procedure they'll have done. They have a list of things that they can kind of reference and, and the patient gets billed for 50% of the procedure. Yeah. And then once, once that payment's been made, the patient, the, the procedure actually happens. And then the the balance is paid after the procedure, I guess.
1: Yes. At the time of discharge, they pay the remaining amount. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then patients who are in the hospital for one reason or another, say, you know, they're having a liver transplant and they have some complication related to the transplant. Like, you know, they're, you know, it's a long extended protracted hospital stay with a couple of things that haven't gone perfectly right. And you have to do something like either a biliary drainage or an abscess drainage uh uh-huh. is yeah. is there a fee schedule for all that when when patients are just having these these long hospital stays I, how does that part of it work
1: um, yeah, I mean, to, to be very honest, everything can be customized. I mean, they would have, uh, you know, shelled in so much of money for a liver transplantation and for a prolonged stay. Uh, so what we do is, uh, you know, although the biliary drainage procedure or taste or any procedure for that matter, it's, although it's an expensive task, they, we do consider in certain cases wherein, you know, we feel that, you know, the billing has exceeded so much that they cannot afford it. Um, so we do consider certain cases, and uh, uh, yeah, but uh, but otherwise, if they can afford, usually they charge the you know the full amount. Um, having said that, uh, you know if, even if it's a complication, it's uh, you know uh, some, sometimes you know it, it's we have to especially consider for certain cases. Um, but yeah.
0: So, so sometimes special consideration is given for the, the fact that you know you were supposed to have a liver transplant. and It was supposed to go X, Y, Z, and you had some deviation from the plan, which required some uh, additional medical care. That that potentially that medical care is is kind of say, oh, well, we didn't intend on that happening, so we'll we'll write that off.
1: Exactly, yeah, exactly. And that happened in many cases, actually, you know, quite a few okay. cases where we had to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Sure, that makes sense. So, digging in a little bit to the equipment and the resources that you have available can can you compare um your current practice in terms of what resources equipment that you have available to you is compared to your training in the u k
1: um yeah, I mean uh the only thing I learned is uh, you know i I suppose when I was in u k the equipment you know we we had like a storehouse of equipment uh if you if you need to do an evar in the middle of the night, you know everything is available, all the grab sizes are available, everything sure. is there uh yeah but unfortunately uh it doesn't work like that over here i mean we don't have any equipment i mean other than the basic equipment like you know whatever you need for embolization and for biliary drainages and stuff like that in terms of um you know for example if somebody has a ruptured aneurysm if you want to do something in the middle of the night i don't think we can do that over here because uh you know the equipment is not available and uh so unfortunately that's the scenario i mean we do i mean it's it's just that you know for uh, I mean I think I suppose that's a compromise that we have to we have to take in India uh, because most of the hospitals no matter what you know we cannot afford so much to uh, keep each and every equipment uh, handy and most of the companies vendors they themselves are not happy to leave uh, leave it on stock over here um, so yeah that's 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 a, that's a drawback and there's one more uh, thing that we often do in in India is uh, you know sometimes. It's re, there is something called the reuse policy, uh, wherein for unaffordable patients, if they cannot afford... Uh, catheters and wires are reused uh, obviously after sterilization procedure and everything. And uh, so there is a reuse policy in India. And which was a shock to me when I came in over here because uh, I have never heard of this. And, uh, but, uh, but there is no other choice. And uh, if we have to do it for everybody, if everybody cannot cater to the, you know, if we have to cater to the needs of each and every person, we have to do this unfortunately. Um, But yeah, equipment is an issue. Um, having said that, the basic equipment is, all, is always there, but yeah, not everything.
0: So tell me a little bit about the reuse policy and that, I mean, I, I can imagine a scenario in which a lot of things can be reused, but then I can also imagine a lot of scenarios in which things can't be reused. What are some of the uh-huh. things that that can get reused after the sterilization process that that maybe you were surprised by?
1: um i mean in the basic catheters i mean the the reuse policy is only for patients who are serology negative they should not have hepatitis b or hepatitis c so only sure. those patients who are serology negative we tend to reuse the catheters and the wires as well the shock to me was a terumo basic you know the hydrophilic coating of the terumo it's, it's gone by the time you <laughs> reuse it once you send it to the you know for the it's it's called as the eto solution that they that they put in and then they sterilize and then the, even the wires are sterilized. And then the, the, they gave, gave terimo wire to me first time I had to get inside the hepatic artery, which lost mm-hmm. the hydrophilic coating on it. And negotiating across uh, you know, the hepatic artery with something which has lost the hydrophilic coating was so, so difficult. You know, We can end up dissecting the artery by doing that. So that was a definite shock to me because uh, I was not at all happy doing that. And having said that, even today, I don't reuse the wires, especially the ones with the hydrophilic coating. And some sure. of the catheters with beacon tip, um, you know, if you kind of, if you reuse it for three or four times, I mean, nowadays, I think we've just got one straight catheter with no, uh, you know, the, the tip attached. But, uh, you know, prior to that, even some of the companies had, had this kind of tip, which is attached, the hydrophilic tip attached to the rest of the catheter. And they tend to break. And it was one of the patients I was doing it and then it broke. And, you know, I had to snare the thing out. So oh, wow. there are a lot of, yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, so these are all the, uh, you know, complex things that we have to handle by using, you know, because of this reuse policy. Um, it's something that I cannot avoid, unfortunately, in certain patients.
0: Sure. What are some of the What are some of the things that get reused and sterilized and work fantastic? Like you, can, you can't tell the difference the second go around. Like I can see a lot of scenarios, like with a Benson yeah. wire, Amplatz wire, where I can't imagine it makes a whole lot Correct. of difference.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Any of the stiff wires, I know Benson or Amplatz wire, or even the sheath for that matter, needles, uh, sheets, and other sure. puncture needles. Uh, the sheets, they, are, they, they all can be reused. Uh, but not the but not the catheters, even the microcatheter for that matter. You know, uh, you know that I don't think we can reuse a microcatheter, especially the one with the uh, you know inbuilt wire in it, like for example Prograte or any of these microcatheters. I don't think we can reuse that um, mm-hmm. because it it so happens that you know we and we don't even know when they are going to give us the you know the reused microcatheter because if something is not available, they are just give the reuse. And in that you know in the when you're actually dealing with a trauma case, if you have to get into some kind of an artery with the complex anatomy, we really struggle getting inside the artery so so that kind of scenario but yeah uh, definitely the sheets the puncture needles some of the stiff wires yeah we can reuse them
0: and can you talk a little bit about the equipment that you have in terms of your your c-arm your ultrasound equipment your your ct table um Uh are are a lot of these comparable um to what you had in the uk in terms of uh, the quality and some of the bells and whistles that are that are equipped with them
1: yeah, equipment is great. Uh, I don't think we compromise on the equipment in terms of the quality. We have a one twenty eight uh, CT scanner. We have a Siemens CT scanner over here, and then we have a three Tesla MRI. And uh, we have uh, you know Philips uh, CAT Lab unit. It's uh, you know it's the it's a hybrid unit. You know both the cardiologists and interventional radiologists can use. Uh, it's a it's a it's a twenty system. So we can uh, add, add, that's the the only uh downside to the cat lab equipment i would say is we don't have a biplane and we don't have a DynaCT incorporated in it unfortunately in this particular hospital where i'm working it was already bought much before we came into this hospital so um they couldn't revamp the equipment at this point of time but definitely it's in the agenda planning to get a dynastity and um and, and and a biplane as well in future uh so those things are readily available i don't think you know they compromise on that because any of the corporate hospitals they're happy to buy the equipment uh you know the the, the top class equipment uh, even the ultrasound machine that we have uh, i use the rs80 samsung ultrasound machine which has got uh, the you know the, the fibro uh, the, the the shear wave elastography in it it has got the uh, the contrast ultrasound option in it so that way it's, it's it's pretty good
0: did you say it's got the contrast ultrasound component to it
1: yeah it's got a contrast ultrasound component to it yeah yeah
0: do you guys do a lot of contrasted ultrasounds
1: um I mean we actually I mean we did few I mean I did it I did it only for um, academic purpose for example uh, you know like a pre and a post-taze contrast ultrasound um, something like that you know for lesions which are not only for academic purpose but generally we sway more towards CT you now at our institute uh, it's simply because, you know, surgeons are very comfortable with CT and, you know, they they really prefer to see what's happening with the CT. But yeah, in certain patients, you know, they're, they're in renal failure and we can't do CT for whatever reason. In those patients, we tend to do contrast ultrasound, but not as a routine.
0: Oh, I see. I, maybe, yeah. I, I don't know if this comes as a surprise for you, but in, in maybe, I'm, I'm not exactly representative of what everyone in the US is doing, but I, I virtually know zero about contrasted ultrasound except on... Um, uh experimental studies one of the the places i trained at we did some um ultrasound i'm sorry some contrast enhanced ultrasound but otherwise I, I just know very little about it and i don't think i've seen more than two and so i would feel extremely uncomfortable trying to like diagnose an hcc or it, characterize any liver lesion based on exactly. it so that's fantastic that you know how
1: yeah i mean it's it's actually it's actually good when uh you know in some of the lesions which are so obscure that you really can't uh you know for example if you want to do let's uh, let's say do a biopsy um, and CT angulation is quite difficult, but on ultrasound, it's kind of poorly visible. I think contrast does help in certain scenarios, I and mean, there are only one or two cases wherein I used contrast ultrasound for biopsy to see the lesion. But other than that, um, uh, you know, we don't often use much. But just for academic purposes, I just tend to use it so that I just get to know what's happening because it's even the contrast that we get is quite cheap. You know, the bubble contrast uh, that we use for contrast ultrasound is quite cheap compared to uh, you know the routine contrast. So yeah, uh, and the module is readily available. So we tend to use that.
0: Sure. So for things that are, I I think I I would qualify these, these procedures as low level interventional, basically, maybe not even much interventional radiology is, is required for training to accomplish these procedures. Like I'm I'm thinking along the lines of like abscess drainages, uh, Uh lumbar punctures, things like this, are, are, are you responsible for all of these procedures, basically anything that may be required, like any kind of needle in your practice? Or do some of the uh, diagnostic radiologists in your practice participate in, in some minimally invasive uh, procedures?
1: Um, at our institute, it's, uh, it's an exclusive um, IR thing, including the acetic, uh, you know, drainages or pigtails or tappings. Uh, you know the plural drainages. Everything is done by an interventional radiologist. Lumbar punctures we don't often do them. Um, uh, it's usually done by anesthetists over here, and um, including uh, including the port insertions and the lines are done by the anesthetists over here. Um, but yeah, the uh, the the rest of the things when it comes to plural and drainages and others minimally invasive uh, interventions, we usually we do it. Uh, fellows end up doing it, but I I feel it's it's important that uh, that you know we have this. Uh, this component to us because in terms of basic needle skills i think fellows get trained in that and you know we tend to do some at least some 10 to 15 cases of ultrasound guided interventions every day and that really helps in enhancing their you know the needle skills or the you know the handling skills so yeah Yeah.
0: did you say that the anesthesiologists do the basically all the line work like a a anesthesiologist do a port
1: Absolutely. Yeah, they they do that. Uh, It's kind of fragmented over here, Uh, especially in India. I think we are probably losing IR to various other specialties, which is a sad part. Um, In anesthesiologists, they tend to do uh, lines and ports um, and uh, nephrologists tend to do uh, Hickman lines and perm cats. Uh, Mm -hmm. Vascular surgeon tends to do, uh, you know, laser ablation of the varicose veins or the microwave ablation of the varicose veins and EVAR um, everything is done by the uh, you know the vascular surgeons, uh, even the iliac angioplasties or the peripheral work. Uh, you know, baloney work, most of the work is done by them. Um, so all that we are left with is, is just the, uh, you know, the, the liver interventions for now and the neuro interventions, I would say. And even the neuro interventions, it's kind of going away from us. There are neurosurgeons who have started doing a lot of neuro interventions who get trained abroad and then they come in and they start doing it. Unfortunately, uh, patients don't come to us directly. Um, for example, if somebody has got uterine fibroid. Uh, sure. When I was in the UK, we used to have fibroid clinics where in, You know, they they just come in to see an interventional radiologist with fibroid problem. Uh, But over here, it's that's not the scenario. They go to a gynecologist and uh, gynecologist never sends the patients to us. Uh, Usually, you know, they're there for hysterectomy or something like that. So, yeah. Uh, Yeah. So it's definitely getting fragmented and it is uh, it's going away from us. And uh, yeah, something needs to be done for this right now. Yeah.
0: Sure. Well, so so kind of talking about that in terms of uh, competition versus collaboration with other specialties, uh-huh. the, the situation which you just described seemed like it was more um, competitive market where people were kind of getting into each other's uh, wheelhouses and, and there was a little bit of competition for cases. Are there any instances where you collaborate with other physicians like Uh, Making inroads with OBGYNs to start like a fibroid referral or working with cardiology or vascular surgery on complex below the knee interventions, like things like this to um, uh, maybe increase uh, the caseload and and, uh, bring in some of these things into the scope of your practice
1: um i mean we we have tried but the, the the problem over here is you know when it comes to because it's a private practice everybody is worried about uh, you know the revenue for their own department sure. and um, it, you know we all are supposed to show the revenue for you know for for the department that you run and uh, when it comes to that and also there is a there's a cost element as well for example if somebody needs uh, for example somebody has an ab fistula and uh, you know instead of uh, you know rescuing the fistula if the fistula is failing I spoke to a lot of, uh, you know, my colleagues and, uh, you know, I said, you know, a fistula needs to be restored. It needs to be rescued. But unfortunately, what happens is, uh, you know, a fistuloplasty uh, or, you know, thrombolysis of the fistula is a lot more expensive to the patient than creating another fistula. So they end up getting one fistula after the other because it's just because, you know, the, the procedure is so expensive and they cannot afford the procedure. And uh, and that's that's partly one reason as to why uh, we probably even despite the collaboration it doesn't work because of the cost factor over here. I see. And uh, yeah, and there are other scenarios wherein uh, you know somebody has got uh, let's say an RCC, a renal cell cancer and sure. although ablation is the preferred uh, choice and your know, nephron sparing should be done but they prefer partial nephrectomy for the patient because again uh, you know they compare the cost and they say okay if ablation is going to cost you you know one lakh in indian amount uh, or 1.5 lakhs in indian amount this you know it, it can be done cheaper than that a partial nephrectomy is probably cheaper than that so patients actually you know even they prefer that and uh, so and that's how they are counseled as well saying that you know it's a cost is probably the same and you know, why not go for this rather than this so sometimes i feel we are just moving away from evidence-based practice to you know the cost-based practice over here
0: how much did you say that uh, a renal uh, an rcc ablation would cost
1: um i mean it roughly would cost and about, I, I won't
0: hold you to it i, I know it's yeah. a, a ballpark
1: it's it's about 1.5 lakhs in, in in indian money 1.5 lakh rupees in indian money two thousand dollars u.s dollars um so that's the cost of rf ablation over here
0: okay i was just curious to get a rough ballpark of of what things cost
1: yeah yeah and so, that's, how, that's how the taste also taste taste is probably around three uh, around two thousand five hundred or three thousand US dollars. Uh, you okay. know the, the transarterial kidney that we do.
0: Yeah, yeah. Right. Very interesting. I'm always interested in terms of collaboration versus competition on, on one topic in particular. Um, who does IVC filters um, in 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 your hospital?
1: uh it's 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 a mix <laughs> i mean at our hospital uh, usually i do it but if uh if a cardiologist sees somebody with an ivc thrombus or if he gets a patient from somewhere usually he ends up doing and you know sticking in an ivc filter uh but yeah it's done by combination of cardiologists uh interventional radiologists and vascular surgeons but at our hospital i've seen cardiologists doing it and i do it and i've seen a vascular surgeon doing it as well yeah
0: I see. Is there still still a big push to put in retrievable filters and then uh, on the back end try and get those filters out?
1: Uh, I mean, uh, what I've noticed is usually they're put in, but when it comes to taking out the filters, it's usually an IR guy who ends up taking the filters out. Um, I sometimes I feel you know retrieval is probably you know you probably need a little bit of more training in retrieving the filter uh, but deploying uh, you know I probably you know they probably feel it's easier to deploy a filter but I don't I haven't seen anybody retrieving a filter but there was one occasion wherein one of the cardiologists tried to retrieve a filter and the filter leg got stuck in the renal vein and oh. uh, that was the point wherein an IR was called for help uh, because it was so difficult the filter was completely tilted and you know, two legs were in the left renal vein, and it was so difficult to take it out. And that's when we were called, and we had to go in and take the filter out. Um, but yeah, that was the only occasion wherein I have seen somebody attempting to take the filter out.
0: Okay, well, seems like maybe more more appropriate for you to be taking on those cases anyway. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. As far as um liver-directed therapies, is there room for yttrium or y ninety radioembolization?
1: Yes. Yeah. We, uh, we do do a lot of uh, Y90 cases over here and it's, it's very, very expensive compared to, uh, you know, chemoembolizations, but yeah, for the affordable sector, um, yeah, we do do uh, transarterial radioembolizations. Yeah. That is available over here.
0: Is it just for HCC or do you also see a room for it in your practice with regards to metastatic disease, right. like metastatic neuroendocrine or colorectal?
1: Yeah, not for colorectal, but I have done it for metastatic neuroendocrine tumors. Um, for colorectal, for some, for some reason, it has to come from an oncologist or an oncosurgeon. And um, I mean, at our setup, I haven't uh, seen a lot of metastatic uh, colorectal meds being treated uh, with uh, tear, but mm-hmm. definitely for uh, neuroendocrine and HCCs, a lot for HCCs. Yeah.
0: Okay. And when you do, and we don't have to get too far into it, and when you do um, for HCC treatment, are you guys using glass or resin?
1: We use it as in microspheres.
0: Are there any challenges that whenever you started your practice or even the practice now as, as being a female interventional radiologist in India?
1: Um, yeah, in terms of uh, being a female interventional radiologist, I don't know. I mean, I don't think I uh, I had a tough Challenge, I would say, in terms of being a female IR but having said that, there are only six or seven practicing, uh, you know, women interventional radiologists in India. Um, it's kind of you go to a conference, and I don't have a company. That's all I feel is a challenge for me because uh, you know it's it's it studded with men, and there are about three hundred people sitting there, and I'm the only person, me or you know, there are just two or three people sitting there. Uh, but other than that, um, I don't think it was uh, that difficult. But a lot of people are not coming forward to take up uh, interventional radiology. It's only because they have this Uh, because of the lack of the training programs, I would say. Not every city has got an accredited training program. So most of the women, they don't move from one city to the other city to get trained in IR. I just wish there was a training program in every city and wherein they can just choose an IR and then they can just get into it easily. Um, And there is also this, uh, you know, this misconception about the fact that, you know, about the fertility and other things in India, wherein, you know, people feel that, you know, getting into IR, you know, it's, it's probably is not the thing for women. And uh, so that, that kind of a thing. But other than that, I don't think there are a lot of challenges. Um, you know, even the emergencies, uh, you know, we just get to go. And nowadays, the infrastructure in, in India is definitely a lot better than what it was even when I came to India some seven or eight years ago. I think we can we can just go in the middle of the night now, which was not the scenario before. And um, so, uh, but it is, it is definitely improving, but I think it's a lack of training programs which is probably responsible for uh, women not opting for IRI? I feel
0: that's interesting. So I'd heard you, or I'd heard a, a portion of your talk in 2015 about the infrastructure being being a struggle uh, in yes. terms of transportation, especially for emergency cases. But that that's been on the up, and, and that's been improving, which has made it easier to facilitate, you know, travel to and from the hospital during you know after hours.
1: Definitely, definitely, yeah. Uh, definitely, and, you know, there are a lot of these, you know, the services, you know, even the Ola and Uber and all these services, which never existed in India before. And all these things, you know, they, they're quite secure that way. And, you know, we don't have to really struggle about the transport or the commute anymore. And uh, so that way, I think it's 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 definitely shown a lot of improvement. And every hospital is arranging a commute for, you know, women radiologists. If we have to travel in the middle of the night, hospital senses a cab and, you know, we can travel in the hospital cab. We can just finish it off and come back. So that aspect has been taken care of. And I don't think it's no longer an issue, but it's just a training uh, that we need to focus on and we need to, you know, encourage women to take up. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, that's what needs to be improved upon.
0: I also found it fascinating Deepa how, I mean, your experience with interventional radiology, uh, interventional radiology in terms of like, you basically came into a, a private practice group. I mean, or, or from the description, it fa- it sounded very similar to going into a U.S. based private practice group. You didn't have a lot yeah. of IR. You, you did physician outreach and physician education, and then now you have a lot of IR and now you've transitioned from, you know, mixed IRDR to full-time IR. That sounds that, I mean, that's like a mirror image of what a lot of people are doing here. So, um, I, I, I think that's fantastic
1: that's great thank you I mean in fact over over here I mean I mean I just try to get into a lot of digital media and try to expose uh, you know IR on a digital media as well I mean because of that I think it's reaching out to people but you won't believe what I had to do to you know to reach out to people because if I just post a video about a uterine fibroid on a digital media nobody's going to look at that Uh, so I had literally put in a lot of entertaining stuff before I actually you know (laughs) exposed myself as an interventional radiologist I'm a Zumba trainer and a Zumba instructor so i had to put in a lot of my zumba fitness videos and everything so that people know who dr deepa shree is and uh, <laughs> and so they kind of look at me as okay fine she is somebody who's doing other things and then later on i put a video about a uterine fibroid embolization then people go in and watch so it's that kind of mentality and scenario and it's it's a it's a very a tough market to crack on so
0: so it sounds like social media is um, a part of the the marketing or the the practice building strategy then
1: oh yeah, a lot uh, definitely uh, I mean for me, I think most of my patients it 's uh, through social media and then we also have got uh, digital media marketing uh, experts wherein they do something called as you know the search engine optimization. So uh, we do have certain guys. There is a, There are a group of companies and uh, wherein they send us patients. For example, all the varicose veins patients, uh, they come to us through search engine optimization. If somebody is looking for varicose veins on the net, I think this thing pops up, this company pops up during the search, and uh, they try to contact that company and then they direct them to us.
0: Um, well, that's fantastic. And so, you, so you linked up with these guys and what they do is – they basically connect people who are possibly in your area and looking for varicose vein ablations directly to you.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's amazing to see the number of I've never seen, you know, before the tie up, I hardly used to see one or two cases per month. But every day you get to see six or seven patients. And sometimes I wonder, where did you all go all these years? And uh, it's it's just that these guys they do this amazing job and uh, they just filter these patients and then they just bring these patients to us um apparently the, even the video engine optimization also works very well is what they say you know if somebody tries to go nowadays it's an error of videos wherein they try to go to youtube and then try to look for varicose veins treatment and at right. that time this window pops up uh, saying that you know if you're looking for this you know try to contact us and then they put them through to us
0: yeah wow that's a great service um then and, and that's great that you get connected um with that How how long have you been using that
1: uh, this I've been using for nearly ten months, or ten months, I think. Um, okay, yeah, so relatively,
0: months. yeah, so relatively new, and it seems like you're having a good experience with it.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah.
0: That's awesome. Sure. All right, Deepa, I think we covered a lot of material here. Is there anything? Is there any stone we 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 left unturned, or is there anything else that you wanted to tell us?
1: No, I think you pretty much covered everything. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah,
0: right.
1: so, yeah. I think right. well, that's a fair. we
0: we really appreciate you coming on and, and kind of giving us some insight into your practice and into the interventional radiology situation in India. Uh, I, I found it very interesting, um, guys. I think that's going to cover uh, today's topic. We covered a lot of ground today. Really good discussion um, to our audience. If you guys enjoyed this podcast, but would like more. Uh, go ahead and check out our show notes to this episode i'm going to be uh, posting them on the website and there will probably be a link to it whenever we uh, post the episode on twitter Um, we'll have a brief summary of the talking points and although we didn't reference any articles we'll always post those in the show notes if you enjoyed this podcast and want to support the show in any way here are two easy ways uh number one uh, take one second and press the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to. It just helps these platforms like iTunes or Spotify know that you guys value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as it's coming out. Uh, secondly, if you're really getting a lot of value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes and leave us a short written review. It helps us in a lot of different ways. We appreciate the feedback. Uh, so that wraps it up. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks. Thank you, Chris.
1: Thank you.